will AI take my job? Pro probably not. Brilliant. Okay. Probably not. If you are in certain roles yep. and certain aspects of what you do will almost certainly be be taken away and be automated. <laughs> That's the nature, nature of it. Hi everyone, welcome to this very special edition of the Happy Workplace podcast uh, with me, Chris Huffman, taking the seat from Darius for the day, all to talk with Paul Bratcher from Unfold AI about AI, the future and, uh, and what it's going to mean for the workplace. It's a brilliant, brilliant podcast we've got for you today. We're going to talk about actually understanding what the tech is and what AI can do, its capabilities, a little bit around where it's going to come from, and also really getting into the detail of how is it going to affect people in the workplace, where the productivity and efficiencies are going to be gained as well. So sit down, stay tuned, and we'll look forward to talking to you shortly. Paul, it's great to have you here and welcome to Happy Workplace podcast. I think what we normally like to with any of our guests is get into a bit of their background, the journey that they've been on, and in effect what's led you to be sitting here with us today and talking about AI. But it's a relatively new field, so understanding more about where you've been to get here would be brilliant. So my background is about 25 years working on board or just off board for everything from small startups to FTSE 100 companies, usually with a technology or a change background, helping them to transform either digitally or agile working practices. Yep. So my background is retail, wholesale, business to business, large, large scale companies. I'm usually asked to bring in innovation and change to help drive a new market or a growth mindset. I first got involved in AI in around 2016. I think my first post on LinkedIn was actually um, about killer robots or something remarkably witty at the time. Yep. Um, well, I think you'd be pleased to know. I said, no, they, they won't kill us. And I was right in 2016. Here we are and we're still not killed by robots. So my first post on AI was in 2016. And then it was mainly about maths and data science, probability and all kind of real sort of the, the deep data side of, of computers. And it was mainly being applied for things like marketing, customer assessment, product assessment, those kind of those kind of things, and then latterly, maybe the last twenty four months before I formed uh, on Ford with my co-founders, I was kind of working in a transformation, a large retail trade business, mainly working as their uh, futurologist, so helping them to determine where AI and other technology might fit into their future strategy. And then, fast forward to twenty twenty three and May, myself, Kate, and Matt decided to form Unfold AI. So Kate and Matt, my two co-founders, they were from a design agency background and they were concerned that their industry was going to be disrupted by AI. I was from a retail and change background and I was concerned that retail and trade and business as a whole was going to be disrupted by AI. And there seemed to be a lack of credible mid-sized companies who could help regional companies, mid-sized companies. So if you're in the FTSE 100 companies, there's loads of people that can help you. But if you're a smaller business where there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of the UK economy is based, there was just a lack of people that could help. So we thought we'd form a company with that goal in mind to help small to medium enterprises and scale-ups to be able to adopt and embrace AI. And we used this phrase, wouldn't it be good if AI was for everyone, for good, for everybody? So that, that kind of human side approach to AI and change to help people get a better world to live in, a better place to work. And, and how's that journey going so far? Because the last six to nine months it's come from absolutely nowhere to i think it's on pretty much every single board and every client we talk to it's on their radars in a really really big way but actually taking that leap when you decided to set it up moving from big big corporate space into a 
brand new SME in the developing developing market, developing world, where you're trying to find your feet with what your real product offering was going to be. How's that journey been for you? It's an interesting question. And like every small business and startup, it's, it's full of good days and less good days. Yep. Um, it's a lot more work than perhaps we were anticipating. And there's been a little bit of trying to help to build more of an understanding than, than we thought. I think when you're when you work in a subject area, you believe everyone else is much further invested or involved or knows much more than you, you kind of think you kind of get into your own bubble of what people thought was about, you know, what people understood AI and, and how people were thinking. And what we've kind of been doing the last maybe eight months is really focusing on the very first part of the AI journey, which is what is AI and how could you get started? It's not that we can't help you once you've got started, we, we clearly can, but there was just so many questions around the real straightforward, well, what is it, what could it do for me? How could I start, where could I start? How can I get this to make money for me or my company? How can I make my world better? So the last eight months have really been working heavily in the education, the reskill, the retraining base, and also getting the word out about Unfold. And obviously we launched our, um, in our opinion, probably the best AI newsletter for business professionals in the UK. Brilliant. Now, it's a really, you touched on a little bit then, but actually I think it's a question that a lot of people have. It's certainly I think one of the first questions I had when I started to get my head around this, but probably one of the most simple as well. If you could sum it up or distill it down to a really simple basic, what is AI? What, what is it? What, what defines it? What is the difference between a computer program and an AI at a, at a more simple level? And you, you touch on it by using the word program. Previous approaches to problem solving with computers and computer programs was to use procedural process. So like a logical flow. If it's A, then it's B. If it's B and then it's C. If it's C and then it's D. So if you imagine this was doing a jigsaw, yep. every piece would be numbered. Yep. And you first of all, you'd find piece one. Then you'd look for piece two. Then you'd look for piece three. So you do it in a logical, you know, very linear, perhaps not entirely, but a quite linear sequence. The way modern AI works is it's more about patterns and matching. So if you're doing a jigsaw now, what you would do is turn all the pieces out of and try and find all the blue bits. Yep. Try and find all the bits that look like the cottage. And you sort of build it out as a network. So whereas in the past, programs were very procedural, very logical oriented, now it's much more about using software that can interconnect and can network and can deduce these kind of patterns. That's really how most of the main AIs that you're seeing talked about in the press work. They have this network of interconnected or interconnected words and it predicts the most likely next outcome. So it's, a, it's really a massive guessing machine. That's kind of how it works. But it turns out that's actually how the human brain also works. It's just we didn't really realize to what extent. And that's why there's some sometimes uncanny similarities between artificial intelligence and basic human intelligence. And, and you touched on the training and the courses you guys are running. And I've been on one of those courses and it was a brilliant, brilliant day. But I think one of the first things you said was that, that this technology started developing in the mid to late 1950s, was it from memory? That's not bad. That's almost star, almost star. So the first, the first papers on computer science were in 1957. The first chatbot, Eliza, she was called, was 1964 or 5, way back in the, in the distant days. But you've got to bear in mind, a computer at that stage would have had significantly less capability than the watch you've got on your wrist right now. Yeah. So it's a massive change in time, technology and, and software. So what's happened in the last year then to really accelerate it onto the, to, to, to everybody's radar and, and 
and make it such a big game changer? So you really kind of need to go back to three points in time. The first was in 2006, which I know is not last year. It's a little bit earlier. So in 2006, Google released a piece of academic research called Word to Vector. And that allowed computers for the first time to map language to a mathematical graph. Yep. And then roll on to 2016, 10 years later, the next piece of research was attention, it's called, it was called attention is all you need. Well, they'd worked out after 10 years of research that even if you'd made this massive graph of millions of words to solve problems, you only ever needed a small part of the graph at any one time. So the thing that really changed it in 2016 was what's called transformers. And that was, um, that was where that code came from. And transformers as a technology sort of kind of carried on for the next five, six, seven years. And then the big difference was a side effect of cloud computing and the availability of data from the internet. So what OpenAI did, who were the people that really kind of set the ball rolling in the public eye, is they found a way of putting much, much more data than had ever gone before. So previously, we would be talking a few hundred, a thousand documents. They went straight to 50 billion. So just a massive amount of data into the, into the graph. Yeah. And then they, they performed the tuning process, which is kind of what has always been done. And that made, made what was possible, a really interesting, what they called base model, but it was still quite poor answering questions. And so the thing they did in 2022 is they, and it's not really, when you say it, it doesn't sound super remarkable. They figured out the best way to train it was to start with the premise that most of the things I will ask it will be a question. So most of the time you should give me an answer. I know that sounds really obvious, yeah. but at the time it was like, a, oh yeah, like a genius moment. So they then did hundreds and hundreds of thousands of exam questions. This is called human-led training or reinforcement training. So the way that would work is I'd have a question, I'd ask the AI, the AI would answer it, and I'd score it versus the model answer. And if it was good, I'd give it a virtual well done. If yep. it was bad, I would say try again. And then it would progressively over time get better and better and better at picking the right answers. And there's you know, several hundred thousand questions on e each topic. That first came out in November 2022. And then they updated it from, a, I think, from 50 billion to 1.7 trillion documents. And that's what came out in May with ChatGPT4. And ChatGPT4, because it has such a large amount of data and such much more advanced training, really did set a new standard. In fact, that standard still hasn't been beaten by all their competitors, even after nearly a year of being live. There are still no one that actually beats it on the benchmarks. And it's likely they're going to hold that lead position for some time into the future because they've had a year of you and me using their tool. And of course, every time it says to you, is this a better answer or worse answer? And we say better or worse, we're continuing to train their model. So they've had 180 million people day in, day out continue to train their models. So that's why GPT-4 is so powerful right now compared to the rest. And so many people just don't know how to use it as well. They're not sure what the capability is. They don't know if they've got the skill sets or not got the skill sets or where to implement it. So from, from Unfold's perspective, what's the niche and, and how are you guys really pushing and developing on that? So within Unfold ourselves, ChatGPT or other AI tools has really become a cornerstone to how we try and um, drive and deliver some of our own business practices. <laughs> because one of the things that we decided early in Unfold was, as a business, you, you don't want to be experimenting with these new tools. 
so we'll do the experimenting for you. Yep. And because we're, we're very open, we're an AI company, and we say to our clients, like, look, we might from time to time try some new technologies and you might be our test subject. And if they work, we'll share how they work. And if they didn't work, then we'll say, yeah, you're right, that, that didn't really work. So, so for example, over the last eight months, we've been really testing virtual avatars and synth synthesized human presenters, mm -hmm. synthesized voice. And we're just at the stage now where we think we can launch, and in fact, we're planning to launch some more modernized, synthetic, sourced and supported training courses. And, and that, that, I think, really is the where the huge opportunities as well, isn't it? It's being able to upskill people, it's being able to train, it's being able to bring to the fore a skill set to a, to a group of people within business who've never had to do this before, but quite quickly with the right training and right support can add huge, huge value to the company, can't they? Yeah, so let's just go back to kind of, back to basics. So one of the things we, we like to try and talk to with, with companies when they first start is we like to encourage them all to get there. And this kind of goes back to my heritage as a, as a, as a carpenter, um, as my granddad would say, is to get your hands on the tools. Yep. Right? It's, it's always nice to imagine what it looks like to make a thing. But actually, if you want to lead and demonstrate how to, how to use a thing, you need that fundamental understanding of how some of this actually works. Maybe not as deep as the people will really end up implementing it, but at least you need to know enough that you can understand the vision and that kind of stuff. And I think what's really interesting about the tool set is they're super approachable. You know, you don't need a ton of skill or experience to at least start to get into getting positive results from them. You know, my father used it and he's 80, right? You know, I mean, he used it to cheat at puzzles, but you know, he's still using it, right? He's still helping him solve problems. And it's quite interesting how when we start to run these courses and we do some of these, we use quite a few almost foolish examples to illustrate a point. Yep. But quite quickly, people realize, well, if you can do that, you could do this. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, it can. And then people get on to kind of refining what the ideas will be. And usually, uh, you know, one of our taglines from our courses is, we like you to come with questions, but leave with possibilities. Yep. And that's, that's the whole purpose of our education. It's not to try and solve every problem for you or teach you everything that you've been doing. It's enough to teach you so that you can then continue to teach and learn yourself. And then when you want the more advanced thing or more complex things, you need a bit more support or mentoring them, then we're there for you. But the first part of any journey is teaching someone to, you know, be comfortable to have a bit of a go. Yeah. And that's kind of um, our mindset behind how we train, what we train, and when we start to encourage businesses to adopt it, we're very much starting from a well. Let's have a go. What could we make? What could we make today that you could use tomorrow, as opposed to what could we make in twelve weeks that you could use in a year's time? And you talked about what people can do and, and understanding the possibilities there. It, you know, it's developing at a real rate of knots. It's December twenty three now. What have you seen businesses using it for, and, and what kind of things is it being? You know, what can it do? So I've seen it used for like remarkably small things that just unlock something that can never have been done before. Yep. You know, just little things like we in, uh, in Unfold, Kate is one of our co-founders and she's responsible for our tone of voice, which is a, a typical marketing thing. So most of the stuff we write that goes out to press used to have to go via Kate. Yep. And Kate would sign it off. That was, that was our flow. Um, Kate's really super busy. So what we would find is if we wanted to move quickly or we had a lot of stuff being prepared, we would always end up giving, Kate would be working late into the night, that kind of stuff. So we developed a little bit of an editorial piece of AI just using ChatGPT. It doesn't write like Kate, but if you feed it 
one of my articles or a piece of stuff versus the unpulled tone of voice, it will suggest this is not quite in the tone in this area or that this bit is a little bit too technically complicated for this subject. So it will give you those subtle nudges. Now, Kate still often signs off most of the major works, but the stuff she's receiving now, rather than being 30% right, is 95% right. So her sign-off process has become much easier. So that's like just a real tiny thing. We're using AI to transcript, extract information from meetings. So we'll often record our meetings, or even when the, the three or four of us are working on a project, we'll just transcript the whole meeting on a voice record on a phone and take that rather than taking notes. If we do anything on a whiteboard, we just take a photo of it and get AI to write it up for us. We don't write it on whiteboards anymore. So lots of small things. And then I've seen some quite big stuff. I've seen people using drones for stock counting. Mm -hmm. I've seen a whole bunch of really interesting analytics and process around routing of parcels and lorries for more efficient delivery and salesman routing, so all, all sorts of stuff. And then, of course, at the far, far end of the scale, you've got the amazing advances in medical research and material science that people like Google DeepMind are doing. They just found 380,000 new solid-state crystals, which is um, 250,000 more than they've ever been found before. And they, you know, potentially could, you know, really transform the entire world. It could be new battery technology, it could be new conductors, could be all sorts of stuff in, in that new stuff. So it's just unlocking a whole load of interesting scientific breakthroughs, medical breakthroughs, and of course, just day-to-day -day productivity. That, that's why I guess I'd say I'm optimistic yeah. about the AI future. And, and from an efficiency standpoint, again, I've been on the course, so I know the answer to this already, but where do they see in terms of percentage-wise so that's the, 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 are you trying to get me to tell you the top line number, numbers? Um, <laughs> I can't, I can't, can't be, yeah, am I steering you? I'm not, ste I'm not oh, steering you, but... Uh, so the, the, the top line numbers are, who will it affect? Um, knowledge workers, yep. which is you, me, and everyone probably listen to this podcast, yep. white-collar workers. Um, <clears throat> within the UK, that's 65% of the population, um, working population, or 27 million people. The forecast is by 2026... Up to 80% of what we currently do could be either automated in conjunction with AI or replaced by AI. As much as 40% could be done as soon as 2025. So that Bill Gates has a really good quote, which is, in the short term, we overestimate technology, and in the long term, we underestimate. So I think the 80% is unlikely. <laughs> I think the 40% by 2026 is pretty safe. So I think by 2026, we'll probably be looking at two days of what we do today will probably be automated or done by AI. And I know that sounds like a scary amount of yours and my time. But if you just take a moment and maybe do this, do this when you're having a quiet moment and just have a flick through your diet last week and find all the things like meeting organizing, chasing for phone calls, all those sort of tasks that, you, that were admin tasks. Um, a friend of mine includes those plus all the things you have to do like the the kids' school trip and there's shopping list. He calls those life min. Mm -hmm. so if you take admin and life min, you'll probably find there's two days that you wouldn't mind not doing. The question then is, well, what do you do with those new two days? Yep. Uh, unfold, we suggest invest them in projects for the good of your well-being and projects for the good of the planet and projects for the good of the company. So don't just pick all about trying to save money or say something else. Don't have a whole well-rounded well-being approach. And that's because... As you know, I've talked about in other occasions, we think the employer of the future cares more about social, economic, environment, well-being, 
than the older generations of employees. So as we're moving towards a more modern workforce, if you can get your company fitter and more attractive in those spaces, then not only have you got a better skilled workforce, but you've got a better place to work. And, and I think the ethics is a really, really important piece in there, actually, and it's, it's well, well worth diving into for a second. If you are looking at AI at the moment or considering putting it into your business or in the way that you work in some way, at what point does that ethics question come into the conversation in your mind? Do you do you lead with the ethics? Do you get the solution, put it in, and then work out? Oh well, how 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 does that does that make sense from a, from a it does ethics point it of view? It depends where you're starting for the solution. Yep. So there there are some areas where you have to start with ethics. <laughs> so for example, in the HR space. Anything that affects an individual's well-being, com- commercial value, wealth, performance-related, anything in that space would be classified under EU and probably under, under the similar UK legislation as a critical system. So anything that's a critical system requires you to be able to explain how it works. Mm-hmm. So if you, for, for example, were to delegate, I'm going to let all the performance reviews be done by AI. Well, if you can't explain how AI made those recommendations, then you're already in breach of the existing ICR and GDPR law. Yeah. If you're looking at things like personal data, personal information, then also you still, AI is not an excuse. It doesn't, it doesn't get you out of GDPR. So there's already a whole bunch of legislation which you should be always cognizant of. And those off the top of my head, distance selling, explosive precursors, GDPR, information commercial officer, fraud and antitrust. Okay, AI doesn't make those requirements which have existed in business and digital transformation magically go away. You can't just say AI did it. That's yeah. not defense. So if you're starting in systems that touch in any of those spaces, you should just start with the ethics and the thinking you're through. If you're not starting in those places, then I would tend to venture towards having a go first. Mm-hmm. Humans can't have anything nice. Have you noticed that? <laughs> right. Um, there was a supermarket that released an app which looked at their inventory of products and allowed them to pick from the inventory of products and suggest a recipe. Yeah. Okay. That's fabulous, but it's a supermarket. So it also sells things like bleach. So it wasn't long before someone figured out you could ask it for a bleach smoothie, right? Because they hadn't done this, the obvious sensible sort of cyber security and common sense test of just making sure there were some guardrails in. Yeah. And then, of course, that ended up in the press, and then you've got reputational damage, all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, they were smart. They just spun it around to a bit of a, oh, it's an AI experiment, that kind of stuff. And it generated more good news for them, and obviously they could fix it quite easily. So I think whilst ever using systems that are internal, you should continue to play sensibly but safely, but you should be brave and experiment. As soon as you start releasing things to public, then you just need to remember, it's new, people will have a go at it, and human beings generally can't have anything nice when it comes to technology. So you talked about guardrails just then, and, and effectively that's, from what I understand, it's almost a, like the barriers on a bowling alley, aren't they? So when, yeah. you, when you ask that question, it keeps it in a certain lane and it stops it answering with things that you might not want it to say or might not want it to answer, which is almost the, the ethical elements in there as well. I'm going to ask you a question now, and I'm going to put one guardrail in place, which is you can't answer with, it depends to the to this question. But it's the question that most people, I think the number one question that gets asked on ChatGPT, will AI take my job? Pro- probably not. Brilliant. Okay. Probably not. If you are in certain roles, yep. and certain aspects of what you do will almost certainly be 
be taken away and be automated. <laughs> That's the nature, nature of it. The counter-argument to that is, is a, a thing called, an economic theory called the fixed labour fallacy. So the fixed labour fallacy is that there's only a finite amount of work to do in the whole world. Um, and the, the argument is either, either we've reached it or we haven't reached it, or that it's, that it's infinite. Most econom economists have come to the point that it's infinite. And if you look at technological change all the way back from, well, from whenever, the um, kind of agriculture, <coughs> mechanization of farming, the mills, steam, industrializations, computers, all that's happened is, is over time, as technological change happens, it unlocks greater, more valuable work that previously couldn't be done before. Yeah. So the nature of your work will likely be different. Will it affect overall employment? It, prob it probably will. And in the short term, probably not positively. As people readjust the skill sets and how people work. And that's that's nothing new. That's the same as if you're kind of my age and you go back to the, the post-industrial period of, you know, steelworks and mines closing down. But actually, most of, you know, as a whole, there are more jobs in the UK than there were then. That's likely to be the case after the AI maturity curve has, has took place. It will be different work, but it should, it should, if it follows every previous other pattern, be more interesting, more valuable, better work. And the challenge, of course, is back to the 27 million people. There's 27 million people to reskill, retrain, re-educate into these new ways of working, which is a, a fundamental, the biggest change in how most of us will work probably since the launch of the PC. I used an analogy with someone the other day, which was if you went back 15, 16 years and sat down with a marketing director and told them everyone is going to have these little devices they carry around, which means you can access them with your marketing content at any given time. You can target it directly to the people you want it to go to rather than just mailing out leaflets and hoping someone picks them up. Marketing directors would have probably gone, oh, wow, that's amazing. We'll save so much money on marketing headcount but I challenge you to find one marketing team that hasn't doubled in size with the rise of search engine optimization, pay-per-clicks, you know, you know, social media advertising. I think actually the, the, the technology has enabled huge, huge growth and innovation. And I think, like you say, there'll be maybe an initial dip in some spaces, but as the reskilling takes place and the competitive elements mean that this is just business as usual, AI becomes business as usual, people find need to put more heads behind it to find their competitive advantage. Is that is that you is that fair? Yeah, I think a good a good analogy to this is there's a famous interview between the Financial Times and Tim Cook. And they were talking about Apple had just launched the App Store. So yeah. it was about 2012 maybe. Mm -hmm. And the financial journalist said to Tim Cook, the problem with the App Store team is it's a rubbish business model because you're giving away 60% of what you make. Twitch team said, yes, but I'm getting 40% of $10 billion I never had before. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that's, that's the way you've got to think about these yeah. sort of changes. You, you might be giving something away now, but there will absolutely be new markets will be made and new, new technology and skills will, will come out. I think that's quite exciting times. And what's the future of AI? So we've seen, say, where it's going, but where, where's it going to go in the next, you know, you talked about 2024. 20, Maybe 25, 26, if we're feeling brave. I mean, my, my son says being a futurologist is the best job in the world because you can make a prediction and then just be wrong and go, oh, well. <laughs> so with that caveat aside, that I may be wrong. I mean, in a year's time, be sat here going, oh, well. Yeah. Things that are on the near horizon, I think you'll see AI moving from being standalone applications to being more integrated into things and more integration into workflow, process automation and low low cost, what are called low code 
a business tooling, which is, if you think about this as Excel macros, but souped up a thousandfold. Yeah. You'll see a lot of that coming. I think you'll see a lot of that being able to run asynchronously and autonomously. So you'll have a set of these agents or little AI robots that live in the background. And when things happen, they do it for you. So it'll watch you in box, and if it finds you know, a, a contact coming to you to arrange you for a coffee, then it, it will treat that differently and, and schedule and book that automatically for you. If it's a, a sales lead from some bloke trying to sell you AI courses, it'll say, no, but I already work with Paul, he's way better on your bike, son. It'll do that kind of automated kind of processes. I think so, I think you'll see those coming, and they're, they're gonna be called probably agents will be the phrase that you'll hear a lot of right. into next year around that. I think you're gonna see with respect to image generation, I think you're going to see consistent characters, the ability to be able to do text, and people only having five fingers. I think that will be fixed next yep. year. I think you're going to see a lot of movement in text to video. So at the moment, you can do text to image, you can do text to text, you can do translation. They all work really quite well. But text to video's limit currently is between four and 12 seconds. And when you get to about second seven, eight or nine, it really starts to, to blur out and become like a potato head. Right. I think by the end of next year, you'll see the first music video that's entirely AI generated and you probably won't be able to tell. You'll think it's just a really well animated sort of CGI Marvel type film. I think, I think we'll be there within the next year. I think by 2027 or 2028, we'll no longer be talking about AI is a new thing. It would be like it would be like today me saying to you, have you heard of email? You know, I think I think by 2028, businesses will have either adapted or they'll, they'll probably will have been in the less fortunate economic punch. I forecast before 2020, 2026, a number one record by an entirely synthetic band. Ooh. So not only will the music be generated by a machine, recorded by a machine, I think the pop star will be an entirely virtual person. So my forecast is an AI Korean boy band in 2020. Is that, yeah. I think so. You talked as well about long-term people underestimate it, what they can do. Short-term, they will overestimate it. How do you th see it being overestimated? What, what do you think people will think AI will do for them that it might not be able to in the near future? So the, the typical sort of adoption curve for, if you just take ChatGPT, is um, I don't know how to use it. I don't know how to use it. Oh, I can start to use it. Oh my God, this is amazing. I'm going to use it for everything. Oh my God, I wish I hadn't used it for that. Yeah. Okay. So there's that bit in the middle where there's that over-reliance and you become overconfident in use of the tool and then you fall foul of the kind of hallucinations or the, the other shortfalls in the system. I think the side effect of that is you're going to see a little bit of calming down into how into how it's being used, which I think will, will be a, a good thing. So you were saying earlier that in the short term, people massively overestimate what it can do for them, but in the long term, underestimate what it can do for them as well. What do you see as the big things that people will overestimate it? Where do you think people will see ways that it will add benefits and values in the short term that, that might be above and beyond what it's actually capable of doing? So I think the, the risk with the tools is they're still, we're still in early majority, early phase. So some of the tools are, st are still a, li a little bit raw. And I think people, they're hoping, they're looking for one tool that will do everything. Yep. And what's become really clear is the current and probably the foreseeable future of tools, there isn't one tool that does everything. It's a tool set. You know, it's, it's a collection of tools. So you'll have one for language, one for maths, one for image, one for video, one for sound, 
one for translation. Sometimes it will be the same too, but, but quite often you want to reach into a specialist tool. So I think the first overreach is people will fight the tool trying to make it do things that it's not good enough at, whereas a smart solution would be to pick the other tool. So, so back to cabinet making, right? In my workshop, I have different size hammers for different jobs. So if I want to move something a little bit, I use a tiny hammer. If yep. I want to move something a lot, I've got a big hammer, right? But you don't want to use the big hammer for fine chiseling because you could end up with bruised fingers. Yeah. So if you think about ChatGPT, it's a good general purpose tool. It can do a lot of things. It can generate images, but they're not the greatest of images. There's a better tool for that. If you want to do translation to voice, then it's okay at voice to text, but it's not so good at text to voice the other way. There's a better tool for that. So you can either put it with the tool and just keep your tool set small, or you can choose to use more appropriate tools. And I think the, the biggest problem at the moment is there are so many tools in the marketplace. It's about figuring out which ones are keepers and which ones are losers. Yep. Uh, so that's quite difficult. So I think the first thing is people over rely on one tool. And then the thing about ChatGPT and all the, these language-based interfaces, they're a little bit like social media. They really encourage you to keep going, keep prompting. So you can just lose hours of time trying to refine and um, the last bit of the process. So you might have spent, you know, an hour working with, with ChatGPT on a problem and you solved it 30 minutes ago and then you spent the last 30 minutes trying to get it to convert the format to be in a nicely laid out table. You'd have been way better off copying and pasting it into Word and formatting a table in Word. You'd have been done in two minutes. So it's about learning that discipline of like, we call it going down the prompt hole. Yeah. So don't go down the, the prompt hole, figure out the discipline of, I'm now on marginal returns or marginal improvements, so I should stop and use a, a more appropriate tool. You know, Excel is really good at maths and formulas and spreadsheets. ChatGPT can do some quite interesting stuff with raw data and help you get to certain places. But if you want to do a linear trend analysis, Excel's really good at that. Yeah. So use that tool. Fair enough. So that's how they're going to overestimate it in the short term, but where do you think people will underestimate it in the long term? I think the underestimation will not be in the AI, I think it will be in the ability to connect AI into doing other things. I think that interconnectedness and the ability for it to solve those previously, they'll be the kind of projects that were hard to do and therefore never really got the appropriate attention, but they would have been really good. To do. You know, things that require translation, connection, or changing from one format to another, those are all really approachable. So I think people will underestimate how much AI might be able to do in the the mundane. Yeah. There'll be a lot of focus on the exciting and the shiny, but actually I think people underestimate how much it could fix the mundane. I think I think that would be quite quite exciting. And then I think the other thing is I think we will we will genuinely have some scientific breakthroughs driven purely out of the sort of AI machine learning space, either around medical treatment, you know, electrical engineering, chemicals, you know, that, that kind of physical space. I think, we, I think we've under, we're not talking about that enough. We're not, we're not investing enough thought into that space. I think that will be really interesting to see. We talked about the training. We've talked about skill sets and, and developing skill sets. And I think currently in the UK, if you look on LinkedIn, there's 123,000 people with artificial intelligence as a, as a skill. That's increased by 75% in the last 12 months. So absolute best case, there's 
60, 70,000 people in the UK with more than a year's experience in some field of artificial intelligence. 30,000 people who made it up. And yeah, it's people who have just put it on there and, uh, and hope for the best. If you are sitting here right now and, and thinking, right, I, I, this is somewhere I need to upskill myself. This is something that I need to build a, a credible skill set, you know, either at the start of their career or mid-career, wherever, at any point, where would you begin that journey? How, how do you make sure you get ahead of the curve on this? So interesting enough, the British government has just released a piece of useful guidance from the Turing Institute. And they categorize people into four types of AI usage. The first is what they call citizen AI. So this is where you're a user, okay? As a citizen, you need to be familiar with it, understand what it can do and how it might benefit you. So you don't really need to know how to use it. It's going to be in the tools you're using kind of behind the scenes. But you should at least be mindful of, of the risk and what it can do. Mm -hmm. And this, to me, will be like basic office productivity kind of skills. You might not know how to use Excel, but you at least know what a spreadsheet is. You know yeah. what PowerPoint is. You know what email is. So that's citizen. Absolutely everyone should be at least that comfortable. Okay? Absolutely everyone. And to put that into perspective, in five years' time, every child that does this GCSEs will have spent their entire educational time with AI and AI assistance. And five years is not very far away in business. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so so that's that's the future workforce, that conversational school. The next is what they would describe as practitioner. So a practitioner would be a, a mid-career, mid-level role. And at that level, you need to be familiar with eight or nine key skills like basic data analysis, how to write a prompt what you can and can't do, the risks and, re and responsibilities. So those kind of core skills, so, so basically competent. So if you think about that from an Excel point of view, it would be like, well, you can, you can, you might be able to do a formula, you might be able to do a pivot table, which you get to do a chart and a graph, but you're probably not using, you know, massively complicated lookups, you're not programming it, but you kind of add that, you know what it can do. Except obviously it's a, a longer stack, so you, a similar level of skill would apply to Word and PowerPoint and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Then you get to but the expert, everything that the practitioner can do, but to the next level. So these would be the guy in your office you can turn around to when you're stuck on Excel and say, oh, how do I do that thing that I know you can do with it, but I don't know how to do it. That's that person, your super user kind yeah. of brain set. And then the last one is the leader. And the leader might not need to have the deep technical skill, but needs to know the implications, the impacts, and what it can be done to use their business or their people working for them to supercharge the next the next step. So, yeah. so if you're a late stage C-suite, you need to know enough to lead it. You need to be hands-on with the tools to be at least citizen or basic sort of practitioner level. If you're a mid-tier intern or above, you should be aiming to be practitioner to expert. And if you're towards the, the mid to late of your career and you're still in a, a, a not a managerial, but a leader a sort of doing role, you should be aiming to become sort of practitioner skill set. You should be aiming to become well-established and well-critical. There's opportunity to act upwards. So I think if you're in mid-tier career, you should be learning the skills with a view to then taking on leadership of change projects because there's going to be a massive need for AI to be implemented across a lot of businesses. So it's a real opportunity if you're in mid to late to cement your later stage career as being a leader of change in AI. So mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what, what I would do. And if you're entering into the marketplace, then you know I think within a year, you'll see on job specs, must be able to use basic prompt engineering. Because you know, I say to you, Chris, how hard is it to put on the bottom of the job spec can experience with prompt engineering, right? It's not, is it? No. If you were going back through your career again today, what degree would you be going for? What would you be studying? 
if I was going back into computing as opposed to changing careers altogether. I think there's, there's still a value in knowing how things work. Yeah. Uh, I think that's not become less complicated. So I think I would still probably do an engineering or a, a, you know, a, a construction type mentality degree. I think if I was recommending to what like my son what to do, I'd probably say the same thing, being able to build things, yeah. being able to make things, whatever the discipline, be it electrical engineering, physical engineering, is, is going to be a useful skill forever because you understand how to put things together. Yep. The skills I wish my course had taught more of would be the soft relationship and people skills. Because I think one of the counter movements against AI and a massive amount of automation, and of course, hybrid and remote work, you know, all of the kind of way the world's changed post-pandemic is the ability to connect to people and have a relationship and have an engaging conversation and understand their point of view. I think those skills are a key skill for all future businesses. And, and especially so when you're implementing or looking to put AI into a business, because on one hand, you're going to be taking some activities away so you want to really maximize the activities where the human connection and the, mm -hmm. the human thought process maximizes and has the most value and i think that's in that relationship the understanding the what's not said when the problem is being expressed i think that's that's just would be super valuable to spend more time learning so we talked a lot about the future of ai future of work and, and the changing circumstances out there in the world close to home what do the next 12 months for Unfold AI look like? What are you What are you working on? What's the stuff that you're really excited to be getting into? We're working on some fresh courses, Yep. which I think will be quite exciting. We've got a, a workshop for advanced prompting, which we're working on. That's going to be based around build a business in a day kind of idea. So, mm -hmm. um, all the way up from product ideation all the way through to a kind of typical sort of dropship modern web business and we'll use that as a, a workbook to practice all sorts of advanced sort of techniques like data analytics and customer sentiment analysis as well so i think that would be quite exciting we'd quite like to run some hackathons with some customers or a customer to help them get to the next level in their business so we're, we're in, in conversation with a few companies around whether that that might be a thing we could do including in fact michael dowies yeah we'd like to run a hackathon for michael dowies next year which will which will be good take you to the next level of adoption and then product-wise, we're starting to build out some of the agent technology ideas that we've we've got. We've got a bunch of sort of intermediate agents called GPTs, which when the GPT store launches next year, we'll go to we'll go to market with, which will help businesses do some sort of niche tasks. So we have one for a couple of things. Every year, as part of the Future Collective, which is our sister company, they collect all the trend reports. So I think we've got 40 or 50, and we've got a number of years of these going backwards. So one of the things I'd quite like to do as a bit of a personal project is collect all these trends projects we've got over a number of years and put them into one big trends database and then see who's good at guessing trends and not, because I just think it'd be funny to see if you compare what people said would happen in 2024 versus what really happened in 2024 or 2023. So I just think that'd be quite interesting, because I suspect from what I recall, the 2022 prediction for 2023, next to no one predicted AI. Yeah. And I'm suspecting in 2024, everyone's going to be predicting that AI will be big for next year. Yeah. So it'd be just interesting to have a look at some of that data and see, see if there's any real, real trends or interesting bits and pieces. And then I'd like to do a little bit of work and thinking around the impact of AI and Gen Z for the, for the workplace, because 
I think in 2019, we were talking a lot about Gen Z in the workplace and how it would change how organisations worked. Then we had the pandemic and wars and zombie apocalypses and Donald Trump and everything else. So it's now three years later, Gen Z are even more in the workplace. I don't think a lot of businesses have really adopted to the changing cultural needs and values of the next generation of leaders. So I, th I think I'd like to find the time next year to spend a bit of time looking at that through an, an AI and a business and a change and transformation lens and put something together to help companies understand how hybrid plus Gen Z plus AI yep. might be 2028. And let's take it to finish. Final question, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek one, but all the way back to where we started, where you started your journey with AI on that LinkedIn post in 2016. I'll ask you the same question again. Are the killer robots coming to get us? No. 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 It's, it's highly unlikely. It's not zero. Yep. So we do need to be careful. We do need to watch what we're doing. We do need to be sensible, but it's, it's very, very unlikely. I'm certainly not losing any sleep over that. I'm more concerned about climate change. I'm more concerned about economics. I'm more concerned about social welfare than, than killer robots by, by far. Those are things where we should invest time in solving. Paul, on that bombshell, I want to thank you for your time. It's been genuinely, genuinely fascinating. And, and we're really excited to, to see the course content, the continued partnership coming out into 2024 and uh, wish you all the best with, uh, with the developing business next year. Thank you very much. Cheers, Chris. It's been Cheers. a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know I found that absolutely fascinating and I really hope you have as well. The Happy Workplace podcast is brought to you by McEldowie and I've been incredibly fortunate to work for the business for 12 and a half years now. And, and the approach that we take is always one of a consulting approach where we really, really want to build our knowledge, build our understanding to make sure that all of our customers are getting the best, most relevant insight. And I hope today has been a great example of that as well. Alongside the great offerings that we do already in recruitment and retention, of which you can find more about by clicking on the links below. One of the things we are really excited to be working with Paul on is developing their suite of courses that we're going to be rolling out even further into 2024. We've got some really, really exciting ones coming up. So if you want to take a look on our Eventbrite page, you'll see courses for all about AI for C-suite leaders. It's a full day course. It's super immersive. It's super engaging. And it's going to take you all the way through the journey that we've started off today, but also using the tools, understanding where they're going to fit in your business, going more into the ethics, the risk and the governance that you'll need to be really implementing them in the right way. So we'd love to see you on one of those courses very, very soon. But likewise, if you are interested in talking to us about where we can support with recruitment and retention solutions, please take a look at the link below and we'd love to come out to talk to you about that as well. In the meantime, we'll hopefully see you soon on another Happy Workplace podcast.